This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border: Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. COVID-19 has shown us how inadequate and ill-equipped our imaginations of national security are. The ongoing investigations into the probable laboratory origins of the coronavirus and the future possibility of such outbreaks go on to suggest that we are faced with major challenges ahead. Just like the splitting of atoms and the invention of the internet transformed human societies and the contours of international security innovations in synthetic biology are bound to transform the world again and they come with their own risks and challenges dna synthesis genetic engineering and gene editing have moved the boundaries of what is possible while its potential for good is enormous its ability to create and design more deadly strains of viruses synthetic toxins and hazardous chemicals will expose the world to unforeseen threats from biological weapons and bioterrorism despite the magnitude of the threat understanding of synthetic biology cutting edge biotechnology and genetics and their security implications are severely limited in the policy making circles today so to understand synthetic biology as a field of techno scientific concern and to apprehend its security implications and challenges i have with me dr brett edwards dr edwards is a senior lecturer at the university of bath in the united kingdom he is currently involved in a number of projects examining the security implications of biotechnology and the governance of biological and chemical weapons dr edwards i am i'm delighted to welcome you to the national security conversation um i will begin with a question um, um you know about your 2019 book uh, insecurity and emerging Tech- biotechnology you cite a chinese delegate at a meeting of the biological weapon convention stating that and i quote accidental mistakes in biotech laboratories can place mankind in great danger synthetic biology in some civilian biotechnology research and applications may unintentionally give rise to a rise to new highly hazardous man-made pathogens with unforeseeable for consequences so given all this debate that's happening today about the origins and source of covid-19 what is your assessment of the possibility of laboratory origin of the coronavirus are such leaks possible i mean even if you discard the fact that this statement was put out by a chinese delegate at a bwc uh convention yeah so um first things first that statement was made at the uh, btwc the biological weapons convention the fantastic regime um uh, institution that kind of has emerged out of a series of historical accidents but also hard work um and it's good that we have at least one forum where states can um air concerns and talk about and stand and set kind of aspirations for example the idea that it's probably a bad idea for people to make biological weapons i think universally this is seen as a obvious statement to make but it wasn't obvious maybe 30 40 years ago where we had programs 
And saying this, I think the talk we see in these regimes is often revealing, as sometimes it's clear there's not the capacity to back it up. And so when we see states making accusations, um, sometimes that kind of gets the newspaper stories for a few weeks or a few days. But the real question is, well, you know, is there an absence of of a respected authority internationally which can deal with these types of accusations and, and, um, and help resolve them? And so for me, this is why technology is really fascinating because technology is cool, right? States get excited about it. Uh, they are worried about it. They're worried about what their adversaries are doing. It's a great way of, of looking good in front of other states. You have these great technological programs and it's a great way of pointing fingers and you say, this state's doing this, it's scary, it's not very good. So because of that, because states like talking about security, for me, it's a great area where we should see multilateralism. It's where we should see states going, hey, Sure. You know. yeah, let me let me sort of uh, push you a little uh, more on that. Uh, do you believe at all in the Wuhan lab leak theory? Uh, if not, what do you think, in your opinion, as as, as someone who's been looking yeah. at some of these things very closely, the source of the coronavirus? Okay, so yeah, I'm not an epidemiologist. Um, what I can tell you is that historically, um, we have issues which are still unresolved. Uh, incidents that were either accidental or man-made or, or related to conflict and it takes a long time and many of these issues never really get properly resolved um, and I think in this case um, it's clear that you have on the one hand uh, natural reservoirs for these types of disease plenty of potentials for interactions which allow zoonotic diseases to move between species and humans so this was going to happen at some point somewhere anyway okay and may have happened before. Uh, it's just, it, it was this time that we saw this epidemic emerge. The issue is complicated uh, by two things. One is transparency. So recently my colleagues, including Philippa Lensos, have, have done some work looking at uh, oversight of laboratories globally. And they're trying to get together a kind of scorecard. And the big issue is the fact that there seems to be quite a lot of variation uh, between different states and you know, that's, that's how the world is in terms of transparency, in terms of the standards they conform to. And so as long as that is there, it always allows other states to kind of point the finger in, in those sorts of things. At the same time, other than general concerns about how um, open, transparent and how safe and secure uh, high security laboratories are, you also have the concern about research, which is problematic. And if in my view, you should have global oversight. And so... If you take, for example, um, smallpox research, there is, because it's eradicated, because it's so dangerous, you have closer oversight of that than other types of, of work. Today, we have research on pandemic uh, diseases of pandemic potential. So this includes things like avian influenza, but also um, Ebola and also um, uh, the COVID uh, variant. Now, some of this work uh, in the laboratory basically involves anticipating potential evolutionary directions of an agent, which essentially means you make scary viruses more scary. And you do it because you want to be able to get ahead of the game in terms of vaccine development. What conditions, of course. Problem is, this then means you're not only handling dangerous pathogens, which should be fine because we have base safety and laboratory safety and security, but on one, you're potentially producing things which don't uh, occur in nature, which don't, uh, which may then contribute to a man-made incident. And you're also conducting work which would always open you up to the charge 
that you're producing things. And this is why it's complicated. And this is why we saw the WHO investigation. Now, I think an important distinction to remember is that a lab leak does not suggest that a pathogen was made in the lab. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes we forget there's this idea that it's either something that's been made by humans or is naturally occurring. It may be the case that this uh, was something that had been handled as part of earlier public health responses and then contributed to a, a leak. It may be that this was a, a natural or kind of, you know, economic type interaction between animals and humans, which led to this disease uh, breaking out. I'm not sure in this case um, if we're going to ever know concretely uh, or if we can know concretely. Um, mm -hmm. But I think in terms of going forward, this points to the need for multinationalism. And in this case, I think I'm less interested in where it's come from and how it's happened. Um, I'm much more interested in whether you're, living, you're sat in India or the UK or you're sat in China, as a member of the, of the general public, you, we should be able to trust our states to get around to the table in a mature way and, and talk about ensuring immediate response and not letting politics get in the way. And so that for me is, is where this is going. And I, I, I really do hope that beyond some of the finger pointing, we do see uh, sincere commitments to the sort of multilateralism. I think that a lot of that will come from civil society and organizations like yourself kind of pushing forward on those sorts of things. Right. Uh, Dr. Edwards, how, how thin is the line between, um, say, biodefense experimentation in laboratories and bioweapon, potential bioweapon research? How thin is the line? There is, uh, they're essentially indistinguishable in some components, in a sense that when you have, say you have two uh, potential directions of work, you have defensive and you have offensive, and large sections of that work are essentially indistinguishable. Mm -hmm. um, and then later sections are, for example, you know, if you're developing a biological weapon, you have to develop a delivery system, refine the agent for storage production. And of course you don't do that as part of vaccine work, but certain uh, investigative work identifying candidate agents that worries people because you're potentially developing strains which either raise big public health concerns. So for example, it might not be that you don't trust that state uh, not to develop a biological weapon because their utility is quite questionable, but you might not trust them to keep it safely. You might, be, you might not trust their kind of oversight and that's what you're worried about. You're worried about the proliferation concern. You may also be worried about terrorism and those sorts of things. Um, so it's a kind of one of those bundled issues. Right. Um, you know, I think it is, um, uh, it's, it's probably a good idea to tell our viewers what are some of the um, areas of potential security concern arising out of the, uh, you know, the new developments in the field of uh, synthetic biology as well. If you could sort of talk about right on that. Yes, point. sure. So we have a long history of state level biological weapon programs. We don't really talk about them. We're kind of beyond that now. Everyone's a good, a good world citizen. Um, we have a few outlier states who we think may engage in programs. From that history, we know that there are certain common obstacles to developing biological weapons um, and different types of driver to why a state would do it. So when you get new technologies, they may potentially reduce technical barriers. And those technical barriers might be things like um, the character of the agent, so making a strain of a bacteria or virus more uh, readily to be stored to sort of to resist and survive the forces of a delivery system mm -hmm. um, or else to have kind of population level it's the way it affects infects people and hurts 
The other types of barrier uh, relate to things like mass production, if that's the route that you're going down, um, which is how you hide the fact you're producing and the fact whether or not you need large or small facilities. Yeah. Um, the amount of waste products you produce as part of doing it. So the, the kind of uh, impacts of these technologies, I know slightly what I'm doing, it relates to the imagined person using that weapon and what they would want to get out of it and the operating environment they're working on. So today, most of the concerns about cutting edge technologies are either about technologies which make weapons which are so that which potentially could contribute to biological agents which would have military utilities to such an extent that it might make even kind of the more friendly states be tempted um, to find caveated forms of use. Alternatively, we may worry about agents which we think the threshold of development is reduced. So Whereas before we only worried about large scale state programs, if you can find ways of miniaturizing production and development, it's easier to hide programs and cheat on conventions. And it's also potentially easier for sub-state actors to develop um, small scale programs. And so any technology which makes it easier, cheaper on a smaller scale to do um, biotechnology is potentially a proliferation concern. And then the question is, you know, intelligence and also focusing on the most sort of likely weaponizable pathogens um, when you kind of focus on what we're most concerned about. The big problem with this, as, you, as I'm sure you know, is the fact that um, any technology could potentially contribute to a misuse scenario. Mm -hmm. And so it's focusing on those things. And sadly, I think what's quite likely is, as we've seen with things like drone technology, where we've seen it uh, suddenly appear on battlefields, not just by states, but by sub-state actors, we're likely to get warning shots. And that will be where we start seeing in certain conflict zones, we would see potential evidence of small scale use and experimentation, either by a state party in a secret way, not, not state party, or by a state in a kind of mm -hmm. subversive, uh, subversive way, or else by a non-state actor with the resources to do this. Um, I think the thing to remember is the technology that impacts upon this are not just biology, not just technologies which make the biology easier, it might be changes which make it, you know, for example, mass media has increased the appeal of certain terror weapons. And so there's all sorts of dynamics which shift. And so whenever we're looking at the future of a technology, we like to keep the, the world still and look at how that's going to move. But in reality, everything is moving. You know, I think, I think well, correct me, uh, Dr. Edwards, if I'm wrong, uh, but in my own understanding, the access to nuclear technology, for example, is not easy at all. Uh, but yeah. when it comes to, um, say, uh, biological weapons or chemical weapons, yeah. for that matter, the access to technology is not all that difficult. I, th I think that's probably why you also pointed out that it's not just the state actors who could potentially be doing this, uh, some bad bad actors, are yeah. but also not state actors. So how do, how do we tackle this issue of um, uh, you know, the easy access uh, to, to synthetic uh, uh, you know, biology, for instance? Yeah. Um, and, and, and to that extent, um, I, I assume the, the obvious answer really is that you need to have more oversight, inspection, intrusive sort of uh, systems, etc. Uh, but is say for example, um, and that is going, not going to be accepted by the by the big pharma uh, for that matter. Um, how I got that right? So it, it, the issue is complicated because if we, let's let's think about um, the different types of misuse actor we could have. We could have a large scale state program, which would be aimed at developing 
large um, stockpiles with delivery system and so standardized weapons because they're utilizing them on a large scale. There, there may also be alternative state program, which is very small, designed for assassination use, for example. In that context, the things you'd be looking for are state actors behaving in ways that appear to be clandestine, who are trying to seem to divert expertise are showing interest in certain types of product. And so there you would use things like state level export controls and those sorts of things. The problem is when you're getting down to other forms of use, such as an individual or a group of individual or engine Rico, something like a, a small terrorist cell, particularly if it's in a weak state conflict, they're not gonna be trying to develop the same type of weapon that a state would want. And so they may be less interested in safety. They may be less interested in being able to do it sustainably. They may be less interested. And so you see here how it's not, it has to be a combination of both intelligence, where we look at the adversaries, their capabilities and interests, and also the potential route. But as in the extent to which advances in technology can reduce the barriers to use, but also um, you know, might reduce the chances of getting caught if that even matters to them and those sorts of things. And so, but this is, this is a big issue is the fact that, you know, we, we really struggle, tech assessment, uh, technology assessment is difficult. Uh, uh, intelligence assessment is difficult, but when you're dealing with emerging technologies, you're dealing with both unknown technologies and unknown adversaries. And so this is why we get lots of kind of crazy scare stories. And a lot of that is, you know, it's, makes an article but I wouldn't worry about it too much but within that there's going to be grains of development which are really worrying um, and they may not just be the high-end technology it might be stuff particularly mass-produced stuff which all of a sudden means a lot more people can have a go at doing something and that doesn't necessarily come from your DIY communities and people like that what I have more in mind is where you have a nexus between criminality and violence there with it'll be those types of sites and so this is why i think a lot of people for example in syria have been paying very close attention to the uh, types of improvised weapons that different organizations are using and that's i think where people are looking they are looking towards conflict zones and seeing particularly where you're seeing the repurposing of of technologies um, and improvisation of technologies like, no, um, um, I, I, I get that point. Um, I, I, I would like to sort of get your opinion on the issue of Big Pharma uh, when it comes to uh, the complications associated with um, uh, governance systems, as it yeah. say, the intrusiveness of those governance systems. Yeah, so, I mean, a real complex. So if you look at, for example, the, BD, the, the BTWC, the Biological Weapons Convention, they have various articles, including like, you know, don't make weapons, don't allow people in your state to make weapons. And you also have this article 10, which is benefit sharing. So unfortunately, as we know, uh, there's often a conflict, uh, an overlapping interest between establishing security and protecting economic interests. And so there's this real complexity here of a kind of states protecting economic interests behind veils of, of, of national security and, and um, also the status quo being kind of regressively maintained by powerful actors who utilize um, control systems as a way of also helping them serve their broader economic interests. So the state on state politics, you have that. In relation to things like big pharma, so the complexity here I think is that this is a complex and moving area. State, lots of 
um, pharmaceutical companies, of course, have their own interests, but you're dealing with often a quite a, a dynamic economy, a dynamic economic system where you have smaller and larger companies and organizations are moving. And I think this is why, for me, in the abstract, you can't really give an answer, but in practical terms, you need, we need to be looking at those pharmaceutical companies, which are particularly younger companies, which are trying to innovate in this area in the same way with technology. And I, it's been really um, encouraging to see where you do have uh, people within the private sector, in particular, trying to work with, with think tanks and academics to develop standards. So one area, for example, we saw that was about you know, 10, 15 years ago, we saw um, early adopters, early developers of uh, gene synthesing, gene screen and gene synthesis technology clubbing together to agree kind of basic standards for checking who they're selling this stuff to just in case they might supply. Mm -hmm. Now in itself, I think what they were supplying wasn't necessarily a, a huge security concern, but then the longer significance of this type of project is that's the type of thing you need to see. And it often just takes a few individuals who really do commit to doing it to kind of get these ideas to catch on and say, so for me, I think it's, it's important to remember that the big pharma sector isn't monolithic, that there is kind of geostrategic, geopolitical issues there. Yeah. But because the technology is moving, there is leverage points for people to do interesting things. And so particularly um, when we see students coming through these biosecurity programs, I know are emerging now, it's really good to see those sorts of ideas coming out. Right. Uh, Dr. Edwards, could you also um, you know, give us a little overview um, about the progress in the field of biotechnology and its industrial applications as it were. You know, some people have sort of um, hailed it as heralding the new, the next scientific revolution as it were. Yeah. Um, so, so what are some of the uh, implications and innovations associated with synthetic biology as it were? Okay, great. So um, biotechnology is a huge expansive area and it's, there's this idea of kind of the hype cycle and different fields of, of, of technology, particularly biotechnology, are at the peak of their hype cycles. So um, CRISPR gene drives are just at that peak of what's the potential incredible things it can do. It'll take a while for those um, developments to actually reach fruition and people will get depressed and forget about it. And then quite quietly, these developments will start entering marketplaces and those sorts of things. So that's one kind of, I guess, disclaimer. It's really hard uh, at the peak of kind of hype to talk, you know, uh, a concrete way about the potential benefits and, and risks of the field. From my perspective as someone works in security, one thing that's clear is that every major period of technological revolution has tightly involved, uh, particularly in the sort of modern era, state involvement and has been followed or intertwined with developments in weapon development mm -hmm. and developments. And so for me, this dark side of biotech isn't something which I think should keep everyone up at night, but it's certainly something where it behooves us as a society to have people looking at this and to have scientists working in biotech to have a basic understanding of this. Because as we've seen at things like Google in recent years, where you know people, people working there on uh, technology realized they hadn't realized they had been funded by uh, US defense uh, funding and potentially their work was going to contribute to weapons. And when they realized this, this they were upset. This wasn't the sort of work they wanted to do. And so they, they decided to kind of kick up a stink about this. And it's that type of things that societies need just to kind of check different types of interests and to in, ensure a little bit of um, 
humility in, in, in state, state technology policy, it's really easy to get locked into kind of competition, into focusing on national interest, into focusing on um, being the best, and this is what states kind of frame themselves to be. But then this human factor, we need to keep that there. You need to kind of, and that's what's going to help kind of humanize biotechnology and make sure that um, while we, there will be mistakes, there's going to be technologies that we wish we hadn't created. There will be technologies where the negative consequences will appear before we've had time to control them. Um, but yeah, so I'm sorry, that's a, that's a fluffy answer, but that's, that's the best I can do at the moment. And, you know, um, it, it's interesting that you are both a, um, a you know, biologist and, uh, and an international security specialist. Um, so when you when you look at uh, settings like gene synthesis or gene editing, um, do you have? I mean, what are you more concerned about the ethical the ethical implications of, of, of these things or the international security implications of this? Uh, both, hundred uh, percent. Like, I mean, the, the horrible thing is that the, the moment in history where we make one thing about looking at this from a kind of broader perspective is the moment at which we most want to predict what a technology is going to do it's usually the most difficult to get a sensible answer on it i'll give you an example so uh, in the 1910s uh, the british government were worried about motor cars they were worried about the impacts that motor cars were going to have on society and all sorts of things they commissioned some experts to to, to identify what these concerns were going to be and the biggest concern they came up with as part of that was dust mm. from the roads that was it. So it wasn't it wasn't the huge impacts on societal disorder. It wasn't fossil fuels. That wasn't even on the radar. It was none of those things. It was dust being kicked up by the roads. There was also concern about people going too fast and, and those sorts of things. But and this is that sounds quite you know silly. And but we're doing that now. Humans haven't changed. So we are still making those types of of, of kind of blindsided decisions all the time. So I find that fascinating. Um, and so I think. For me, what technologies can do is fascinating. The stories around how technologies emerge is fascinating. And what I'm still trying to get my head around is this kind of lag between the technology emerging and it having its impacts and its kind of, and also the way in which we have collectively continued as you know, technology change is not new. We've always done it. And so thinking about how humans have, have continued to develop their societies in response to technology and kind of as a necessary thing that they do, which produces benefits and risks, but they can't, you can't cut it out. You can't get rid of it. You can't stop technology. Um, so it's thinking about has societies got more big, got larger or more complicated. <coughs> Excuse me. We've also needed much more complicated ways of overseeing the world. And I think that's the big thing to remember is the fact that we're really good at doing big tech. We're really good at doing big national projects, even global projects. What we forget to do, is the big tech ethics. So I don't mean like policing it. I mean the fact that I guess a technology developed in one part of the world for one reason can have transboundary impacts within the generation. And yet it's very likely that no one else has had impacts in development of that technology in the early years. And so this is the reason a kind of wake up call, particularly for states like the US who have traditionally been exporters of technology to start thinking about how to make good neighbors in terms of innovators. So how to, how to not just trust what people are making, but to trust their process, to trust that you know, they get a heads up if things happen, to get rid of shame so that states can be honest about mistakes that are made or environmental costs and those sorts of things. But yeah, so, but I'm still, 
trying to get my head around that at the moment. That's one of those areas where I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time, I think. Right, you know, um, you know, looking at um, the security studies as a field, uh, hmm. as a sort of discipline, uh, I often feel that uh, the state-centric concept of security is sort of ill-equipped to deal with uh, some of these emerging techno uh, scientific revolutions yeah. and innovations out of the way, uh, especially in, 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 in fields such as synthetic biology or artificial intelligence for that matter. Um, do, do, you, do you feel the same way? Do you think the mainstream uh, national security imagination or international security imagination hasn't really um, you know, stepped up to sort of reimagine uh, the implications yeah. of some of these technologies. That's a great point. I, mean, I think we're at a, a, it's, it'd be easy to say we're at a threshold moment. I don't know if there ever will be a threshold moment, but like our institutions, our academic and intellectual institutions deal with what's gone before. So we tend to, mm-hmm. you know, these, we're still trying to come to terms with the UN system that we built and, and that's failings and strengths. Right. And so it's clear that at this point in history, we're seeing alternative forms of states emerge, alternative forms of, of power relations between what we would used to call sub-state actors and states and the fact that we have large private entities, which we have large regulatory environments shaped by these entities. And so, yeah, I, the way I see it is layering. There needs to be this new generation of scholars which get to grip, for example, with the role of big tech, big tech actors in national ecosystems, but also in the international environment. Um, it's clear that many of the tools we developed um, weren't necessarily fit for purpose at the time they were developed and certainly not fit for purpose now, but they're the best we have and they're the world we work in. And so, I mean, for me, the thing that's been most, I think, humbling about looking at this area is the fact that we're always looking for the right answer, like to solve the problem of tech and governance, to solve the problem. There isn't one. It's constantly um, having to rediscover. There's an old saying that, um, uh, technical problems are solved once, political problems are solved again and again. And this technology politics relation is a you know, classic a political problem. It's so fundamental to humans that we are going to have to continue to find new ways of innovating. And what's exciting about that is, for me, that says that these new norms and institutions aren't necessarily going to be built by the same states that built some of the, the other traditional UN institutions, for example, or, or most central to those. And so we're going to see new styles of governance emerging. Um, and it's worrying and it's scary. And unfortunately, it means that there are going to be bad things will happen. And, it's going to, and it will take us time to, to counteract them. Um, but yeah, so I think moving away from, from a state-centric ideas of security is really important. Um, but we still live in that world. And so I think the younger generations need to be focusing on new types of governance infrastructure, the new architectures, which we're still trying to get our head around, then the ways that um, standardization in industry is emerging, um, the extent to which specific organizations can demonstrate ethical agency, or they're just at the whim of, of the money, of following the funding, and, and those sorts of things. And, but there's a huge scope there. I mean, this is the world, the world's happening all the time. And so it's what AI is such a great example as well. There's um, lots of attempts here to build a new ethical landscape. So not just answer the question, is it good, is it bad, but to think about, well, how is a society, who should be asking that? How should it be answered? Do different states have different understandings of how these technologies should be engaged with and, and, and governed? So, yeah, it's a, a very exciting and live area, and I'm, I'm sure that the generation of scholars coming through are going to be looking at that for, you know, for decades. 
you know, I, I, I've always thought that, um, in fact, looking at some of these these developments these days, uh, you know, my own feeling is that there should be a lot more constructive conversation um, among, um, say, uh, national security analysts, um, um, epidemiologists, uh, public health specialists, and, and, and people who deal with this kind of technology. I mean, you know, be it uh, the industry, the big pharma, whoever. I think that that conversation hasn't really... Uh, happened. I mean, people are, I think, still thinking, meditating in their own silos uh, or working in their own silos. That's not really going to help. Uh, do you think, do you, re I mean, sitting, sitting in the UK, um, is there a conversation of sorts happening in the West at all um, among these among these various groups? As well? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I guess the problem is that for any issue, you always have groups of experts and communities of practice and and the idea, I think, certainly for me, I always want, maybe this reveals my internal hidden <laughs> political psychology, but whenever I see a problem, I'm like, well, wouldn't it be a great, there's a central authority that could help facilitate decision-making, right? And that's that's like almost like the gold standard. But we know that that's not how the world <laughs> works. And so a big problem is the fact that we do need to constantly, every generation, be reinvesting into looking at creative solutions. And that, I don't just mean it in like a kind of laissez-faire capitalism, we need to kind of continually innovate and for the sake of it, but I mean in the sense that, you know, um, many of the progress come from dedicated individuals working within civil society. Sometimes it comes from scientists who have a concern about certain types of research. I mean, I know individuals, for example, that were talking about research of pandemic potential, you know, for the past 15, 20 years, and then this story has broken. And, and now it's kind of like, they're like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, we have we, we have been pointing it out that this might be a concern. We should probably sort. And so, in that respect, I think that, um, yeah, I think that you should. There's always need for reinvestment in both content, but also the institution. Institution building is really important. Right, you know, um, a couple of more questions, uh, Doctor Edwards, and and uh, you know, when you look at uh, a global regime like the BTWC. Um, it's clearly not well equipped to deal with, uh, you know, uh, the, the new technologies uh, like the synthetic biology, for example. Um, you know, if, if, if you look at the three WMDs, uh, the, the, the uh, nuclear, chemical, and biological. I mean, nuclear has a lot of institutions, regimes, um, treaties, that, this, and the other, what have you. Um, the Chemical Weapon Convention has a uh, treaty organization, uh, OPCW, but what you don't, I mean, when you come to, when you come to the biological weapons, you simply don't have anything. Uh, it also, do you think the upcoming um, uh, meeting in November, November 2021, right, this year, um, is, is that going to sort of, uh, are we going to witness some major decisions at the, at the uh, BTWC convention later this year? Because it seems to be, you're looking at a regime that is simply elected to deal with uh, new challenges, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I did. I mean, I always I stole this one from someone. I forget who, but the 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 implementation budget um, for the BWC is smaller than the UN's cleaning budget. I mean, this is something that I've stolen that, and it may be a few years out of date, but I'm still using it because it it sounds like it should be true, right? Um, but it's true. I mean, it's true. I mean, the the implement body is you know, three full time people. That's who they have overseeing. Now, I'm not entirely sure if many states see the BWC at the moment as the site where pivotal decisions which change the direction of global diplomacy in the area of biological weapons is going to happen, right? Um, I'm not even sure if that's what that institution is meant to be for or whether that's good or a bad thing. Increasingly, 
as a, a pessimistic person who's also quite pragmatic, I think the role of that organization should be to shame states into action. And I think the way you do that is by a simple way of doing that is to certainly undercut ideas that things are technically impossible. And I think the role of, of, of civil society and the epistemic communities around this area is to demonstrate that actually, technically, with limited resources, we can, do, we can build things and we can do them. Because then it makes it a lot harder to say, well, this would be difficult. We're not quite sure if it's solvable and resolvable. And for me, that is a way of doing it. And so, for example, I've had colleagues most recently who have done a global map of BSL-4 level laboratories, self-starter project, and... The question is asked now, well, why doesn't someone like the, the UNBWC, they should have that standard, right? I mean, that's a great, having this idea where someone can look up a lab, what are their regulations, brilliant. So you do it, you build it, and then you, then hopefully that becomes something which is diplomatically seen as necessary and obvious. And likewise, I think for me, in recent years, the uh, absence of a clear or a large capacity for reviewing science and technology at the international level and a large technical capacity is something where it's a no-brainer in the sense that it's not necessarily politically controversial. It's good for states to show off what they're doing. Um, and so I, for me, there needs to be an investment into greater centralized S&T capacity. The function, I don't need even be that specific, but there needs to be a central area where we can talk about trends which are relevant and can worry states and help civil society point to the need for action. Right, you know, here is my final question, really. Um, and and you know, when I when I looked at your uh, profile, what really impressed me was the uh, multidisciplinarity that you do that that you have in your work. I mean, you you work on um, uh, you know technological issues, public policy, and and sort of national security. Um, how do you sort of bring all of this together in your own work, and and, and sort of where do you see this uh, uh, work taking you in the in the years to come? Because this seems to be, in my opinion, the need of the hour. We are all working in silos. The public policy guys don't speak to the um, national security guys, and national security guys certainly don't speak to the uh, the biologists and the virologists. But you seem to be sort of navigating multiple multiple sort of uh, universes up this way. Yeah, I'm happy to be the least informed in the room. That really helps. I think um, for me, the, the, the book I wrote, the aim of doing that was to kind of look at a very complex and ambiguous issue area, which doesn't even have a central institution or a central problem. It's kind of a, this messy area of, it's a, a kind of fault line in various institutional landscapes. And to try and find simple common ways of talking about it and pretend that builds bridges between communities. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, this is why it's frustrating. You don't get to build solid things that last forever, but you do get to be part of attempts to keep things on the road. For example, the BWC, they, it's, a, it's a fantastic forum. It can do great things, it's limited, but it's right, it's important to keep working on those sorts. There, there are inheritance, if you know what I mean. Um, in the longer term, I think, for me, I'm really interested in tech assessment and in thinking about more global norms. Mm -hmm. So many states are quite good at the national level at talking about technologies and, and getting their regulatory frameworks, thinking about these things early on. It doesn't always work out, but at least they have institutional capacity. At the global level, it's, it's... And so for me, that's something that needs to be. And you have embryonic institutions within the UN system, for example, who already do 
kind of occasional technology and horizon assessment work. And so I would love to see a forum where you were seeing not just the negative sides, but also the positive sides discussed. Obviously, for me, as a, as a pessimist, I think the positive sides are often discussed because there's economic incentive to discuss them. But many of the really worrying negative things, and which may be a bit more of a niche concern, um, they're often ignored. And so, um, or they're easily dismissed as kind of, uh, along with the other kind of more ridiculous concerns you see about emerging fields. And so, for me, I think you need communities of people, particularly young scientists coming through, people who are building large-scale technology projects at the national level, um, in order to make sure that they've at least considered some of the potential proliferation concerns associated with work. And very often, the reason you do this is not to implement regulations, it's not to implement controls, it's to have systems in place that give you the confidence in your work and in the kind of oversight you already have. Um, but yeah, so for me in the longer term, definitely international institution building. If we could get the BWC to um, to states to support BWC developing its science technology review, uh, I think that would be really important and it'd be a great year to do that if we could. Um, so we'll have to see. Fascinating insights. Thank you so much, Dr. Edwards, for coming on the show. I'm, I'm really delighted to sort of have you on the show.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.